Okay, thank you very much, Mark, for leading in prayer. Thank you also, Abby, for reading the scripture reading uh, for us this morning. Great job. Um, you know, just before I begin, uh, something I wanted to say uh, with respect to um, Mark's prayer. You know, he talked about how uh, we are in this time of languishing, um, a little over a year into the pandemic now, and early on, People worked really, really hard to stay connected in the midst of the shutdown. That's back last spring, and then we were able to sort of get going a little bit again in the fall. We faltered a bit in the winter, but got back into it again. And now this spring, just the stay-at-home order is going on and on, and people are just feeling, Bleh. you know, they're not, they're not in a complete depressive state necessarily, and they're not certainly flourishing. They're just in this blah state. And what one of the things that happens is, is you start... You start saying to yourself, yeah, I could, but I won't. So, you know, you, you get a request from Kate uh, to read scripture or from Mark to uh, lead in prayer. And you, you say, yeah, I could, but nah, I won't. And I get it, okay? Like, there's a lot of things right now in my life that I am saying, eh, I could, but I won't thing is, is that all the, all the experts, so-called experts, are saying that the way, one of the big ways of getting out of the languishing problem that you're facing right now is you actually do those things that you could, but you won't. Stuff like the prayer meeting on Monday nights. You think, ah, it's a half an hour, it'd be good, but, you know, I got this other thing, or, you know, uh, I had a busy day or whatever, and you say, ah, I won't bother. And what happens is, is you end up kind of stuck in the spot. Um, because of that. So I'm just encouraging all of us to remember that when we have opportunities to serve and participate in things and uh, we make the decision not to simply because it feels like work to bother with it. Um, resist that urge. By the power of the Spirit, we shall overcome. All right, that's my little preamble. Uh, today is Mother's Day. I'm not going to preach uh, a Mother's Day sermon per se uh, this morning, but what I am going to do is we're, we're going to look at um, the relationship between parents and children as uh, it's found in the book of Proverbs. Now, some of you might want to tune out right away and say, well, I'm not a parent, so why should I bother listening to this? Well, not, not all of us are parents, but all of us are kids, Okay. And there is as much in this for kids as there, there is for parents. It's going to sound like a parenting sermon, but it's for all of us. And, and maybe you're the kind of parent who says, well, my kids are grown up and out of the house, and I'm not really involved in, in you know, raising them anymore. Ah, but what you're going to discover is that this kind of parenting, biblical parenting, is lifelong parenting. Uh, as long as you have, your children, uh, you have your children in your life, you can participate in this, uh, this activity as it's described for us in this passage. Now, you know, we're all, we know the importance of our homes and our upbringings, right? Uh, we're all a product, I guess, of, of our relationships, and, and probably there is no more formative a relationship than the one between a parent and a child. And cultures have known this uh, since the beginning of time, of course, but what is interesting about our modern culture today is that we seem to be strangely fixed 
on the parent-child relationship. With the, with the uh, ascendancy of Freud in the early part of the 20th century and the rise of what we would call modern psychology, more and more people have uh, gained uh, access to ways of analyzing relationships. And we've learned a lot about how uh, relationships and our upbringing shapes us. We are a product of the homes that we've grown up in. What we are like and the things that we believe and the way we do things is very often uh, heavily influenced by the home in which we grew up. I mean, there's an old saying that the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, and there's a reason for that. Um, much of who we are is shaped and nurtured by the home in which we were we were raised, and we've come to learn this in new ways because of modern psychology. But here's the thing. One of the, I guess you could call it negative results of this, is that there has been in the last number of decades, especially in the last couple of decades, kind of an erosion of parental confidence. Parents have become less and less confident about how they are supposed to raise their kids. And one of the reasons is, is because they are more knowledgeable. There's, there's this strange principle that, that says that, you know, when you, the more you know about something, the more you discover you don't know about something, right? So the more you study the Bible and you study God, for example, the more you realize you don't really know and understand. There's more mystery. So as you gain knowledge, you also gain knowledge of mystery. Let's put it that way. And in this area of life, uh, people have started to, to become less confident of the, about their parenting skills because they, they have uh, learned so much about modern psychology. So, for example, we have all these, these bewildering, almost, uh, developmental psychology schools. So, let me just give you a few of them. So, you have uh, attachment theory. You have ecological systems theory. You have psychological developmental theory. You have moral developmental theory. You have cognitive developmental theory. You have cultural historical developmental theory. And then, of course, you have evolutionary developmental theory uh, and also uh, family systems theory. And there has been an explosion of books in the last couple of decades from each of these different schools of psychology, all with their two cents on how we are to raise healthy, well-rounded, stable children. And it's actually created a, a bit of anxiety among parents because they're like, who am I supposed to listen to? What am I supposed to do? They, they've lost confidence sort of in the principles of raising their children. Well, what we're going to try to do... So we're going to try to clear away the clutter this morning. We're going to try to clear away the clutter and look here at the book of Proverbs and, and understand what it has to say about raising children, children and the relationship between parents and children. Now, it's not obviously going to say everything. We're not going to get down into the nuts and bolts of how you properly discipline or how you properly educate your kids, that kind of thing. What we're going to do is we're going to look at the main thing. And we're going to learn how important it is to keep the main thing the main thing. We're going to look at the foundational biblical principles of parenting in general. 
that's what we're going to look at. So first of all, we're going to see the prime responsibility of parents. What's our prime responsibility? Why is that the prime responsibility? And how do we fulfill that prime responsibility? Three things. Let's go to work together. First of all, what's our prime responsibility? Well, it's interesting in these, these first verses in um, uh, Proverbs chapter 4, Solomon is reflecting, in a way, on his own childhood. That's what he's doing in verses 3 and 4, where he says things like, I too was a son to my father, still tender and cherished by my mother. Then he taught me, and he said to me, take hold of my words with all your heart, keep my commands, and you will live. So he reflects on his own childhood and the important things that he's learned from his own childhood. And then he says, here's the thing that my father impressed upon me, and I want to impress upon you, the next generation. Beginning at verse 5, he says, get wisdom. Get understanding. Do not forget my words or turn away from them. Do not forsake wisdom, and she will protect you. Love her, and she will watch over you. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. Isn't that interesting? The first step of becoming wise is realizing you're not wise, and you need to become wise. In other words, what what Solomon is saying here is he's saying that no matter what, though it costs all you have, he says, get wisdom. He pleads with the next generation. He pleads with these children. Now, you got to understand, the book of Proverbs was written, yes, uh, you know, it sounds like a father to his son, but it was written actually as kind of a textbook for boys, um, Jewish boys in uh, in the Hebrew world who, who studied it and uh, understood it as not just being from one father to one son, but from one generation to the next, okay? And Solomon is pleading with the next generation, and he's saying, look, of all the things that you can chase, of all the things that you can pursue and run after, the number one thing you have to pursue is wisdom. There are lots of things that are worth developing, Go ahead and chase achievement. Go ahead and have a goal. Maybe it's an athletic goal. Maybe it's an academic goal. Maybe it's a financial goal. Maybe it's a material goal, something that you want to buy. Go ahead and and seek after those things. There's nothing wrong with that. Many of those things are good. It's good to want to achieve excellence. It's good to identify your skills and abilities and say, I want to develop those. I want to have talents. I want to become like the worship team members so that I I can play an instrument and I can use that ability to, to serve God. These are all very good and important things. It's good to want to pursue success. It's good to want to pursue pleasure. These things are all okay in and of themselves. But he says, the one thing, the main thing, is not any of those things. It's wisdom. Our culture says to us, get thin, or get young, stay young, stay fit. Our culture says to us, get rich. Our culture says to us, get sexy. Our culture says to us, get famous. Solomon says to us, get wisdom. Why? Verse 13, listen to verse 13, guard it well for it is your life. Parents, your first job with your children 
is to teach them wisdom. Now, of course, that raises a very important question, doesn't it? What is wisdom? If it is so paramount, if it is so important, I better know what in the world that thing is. Well, Jess and I, uh, we, years ago, we listened to a series of sermons on Proverbs from Tim Keller. And over and over and again, he gave a definition of wisdom that we have found very, very helpful and useful in our own lives. And I'll just share it with you. He stole it from a German uh, theologian by the name of Gerhard von Rad, so it's not original to him. But this is what he said wisdom was. Wisdom is competence with regard to the complex realities of life. Isn't that good? Competence with regard to the complex realities of life. You see, life, living in this world, on this earth, it is complicated. It is difficult. There are, of course, all the various moral uh, uh, difficulties that you have to traverse and you have to navigate. But life is not just about figuring out what is right and what is wrong. It is certainly that, but it is certainly more than that. And having wisdom is not just knowing what is right and what is wrong, what is moral and what is immoral, what is ethical and what is unethical. That, of course, is part of it. But it is so, so, so much more than that. It is knowing what the right thing or what the best thing to do is at the best time in the best way. It's knowing what is the best thing to do at the best time in the best way. Because uh, there are thousands of, of situations over the course of a lifetime where the moral rules, narrowly speaking, don't really apply. So, for example, you're finishing high school. What do you do now? You want to go off to school. Okay, what school do you go to? Do you go to school A or do you go to school B? That's not a moral issue. That's a wisdom issue. Parents are wondering, do I sign my children up for summer sports this summer because of COVID? Or do I, you know, I heard that the Durham School Board was already asking parents now, are you going to choose online or in-person education in September for your kids? Parents have to go, I, I have to make a decision about that now. That sounds nuts, of course. But it's not a moral decision. It's a wisdom decision. We all believe that we should help the poor. I don't know anybody who says, well, okay, very few people say, don't bother helping the poor, That's the, they're on their own. The vast majority of us believe that we all want to help the poor, but sure, what's the best way? You ever read the book, When Helping Hurts? The church bought in for many decades into this short-term mission trip thing that was really supposed to help as we went down to uh, developing world uh, countries and we built schools and we built hospitals and we, you know, we put dug wells and stuff like that, and this book discovered that actually that process might be more hurtful than helpful to the communities that we're helping. You know, it's, it's not always easy to figure out the best way to do things. It takes wisdom. And as parents, we're called to cultivate that. You know, Paul, in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, uh, six verse four he tells parents, he says, bring up your children in the training and instruction of the Lord. And everybody always runs to the training and instruction of the Lord part. But notice that Paul says that parents are called to train up their children or bring up their children. They're, they're, they're meant to bring them up, raise them up, bring them to maturity so that they are useful, independent adults, not dependent upon you. 
So for example, here you have a 14-year-old who comes home from school. Uh, it's 4 o'clock, and uh, they want a big snack because they're super hungry. And mom says to them, okay, look, or dad says to them, look, no, you're not going to have this big snack. You can have a small snack because I don't want you to ruin your appetite for dinner. We're going to have dinner at 5.30 or 6 o'clock, so just have something to tide you over. And they kind of grumble and complain, okay, fine, and they only have a little bit. Now, that's normal that you have this conversation with your 14-year-old. But what if they're 20 and they're away at university and 4 o'clock rolls around and they call you up and they say, I want a snack. I'm feeling kind of hungry, but, you know, we have, uh, we have you know, we're going to have supper uh, in the cafeteria at 6 o'clock. What should I do? As a parent, you would say, what are you asking me for? You're an adult. Make a decision. My role was to show you the way that you should go so that in your, in, through, in your youth, so that you would not depart from it. But listen, you have to take responsibility. You're supposed to be a responsible adult at this point. Your job as a parent is to raise your kid up. I'm, I'm thinking of all these parents that we have in this church with very young children. And you love your kid. And you love having them around. And you love seeing them grow and develop. Do you realize that the whole point of you having them is to get rid of them? I, I almost titled this sermon, Get Them Up and Get Them Out. Because that's really what you're, what you're after. You're, you're, you're seeking to make them ready so that they no longer will need you uh, because they're able to, to make the de wise decisions to critically choose between what is right and what is wrong and what is wise and what is false. And that's your role, to bring them to that place. And what you need to understand, okay, important, important, important distinction here. Wisdom is not synonymous with intelligence. Wisdom is not synonymous with education. Listen to verses 11 and 12. I instruct you in the way of wisdom and lead you along straight paths. When you walk, your steps will not be hampered. When you, stum when you run, sorry, you will not stumble. You hear that? Your steps will not be hampered. When you run, you will not stumble. He talks about straight paths. What he's saying is this. Look, my goal is to give you the wisdom to know how to walk a straight path because walking a straight path is a lot easier than walking in a messed up path. You know, you know when you go on the, for a walk on the rail trail? I love the rail trail because it's, it's generally pretty flat. It's wide. It's got uh, crushed gravel on it. They've taken away all the roots. It's basically straight. And you go for a nice walk, and you don't have to worry about it. Now, if you're like Megan, and you're into all these crazy parts of the Bruce Trail that you want to you wanna travel, you're, you're walking down these hills, these steep inclines, and there's roots sticking out, and you're on the edge of a cliff every now and then, and you have to keep your head on straight so that you don't tumble to your death. What, what, is, what is he saying here? What is Solomon getting at here? He's saying that wisdom leads to a better life. Wisdom leads to an easier life, and it is not tied to your intellect or your education. I have a friend who teaches at a, a big public, public university and has told me, he says, you know, what shocks him sometimes is just how screwed up many of his colleagues' personal lives are. 
These are people who are at the top of their field. They are absolute experts in their area. They are so incredibly knowledgeable. They are so incredibly educated. And their relationships with their spouses or their relationships with their kids or their relationships even with other faculty members are an absolute disaster and a mess. And you know why? Because they're oh so smart and oh so educated, but they are not wise in the least. They don't know how to relate to other people. They can't interact with them. We in our culture, we put a tremendous amount of emphasis on education and intellectual ability. Don't ever confuse that with actual wisdom. Okay, that's the responsibility. Number two, why is it so critical? Well, now we're going to turn to chapter 22 of Proverbs. And we're going to look at just one line of one verse. Verse 15, it says, Folly, other translations use the word foolishness, Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline will drive it far away. Now, I am not going to get into the second half of the verse today. Um, Discipline need not be a literal rod. I will just say that. I want to talk about the first half of the verse. The reason that this is our primary responsibility, Solomon says, is because folly is bound up in the heart of a child. What he's saying is, is kids are foolish. We are born unwise. We are born foolish. Now remember, this is not an IQ issue. This is not an intelligence issue. That's not what we're talking about here. It's not an education issue. It is a heart issue. We are born foolish. Well, what is foolishness? Well, if wisdom is competency with regard to the complex realities of life, foolishness can be described very simply as this. It's being out of touch with reality. The fool is out of touch with reality. Probably Psalm 14 verse 1 best summarizes the fool when he says, in his heart, the fool says there is no God. You see, at its root, reality has God at its center. He is the most important reality. He is the center of reality. He is the author of reality. He is the creator of reality. He is like the sun around which the planets of our solar system rotate. We are the planets. God is the sun. We are to orient ourselves to the ultimate reality. God is the one who created it. God is the one who designed the fabric of it, and therefore there is a givenness to the reality in which we live. There is a, a when I say given there is an isness, meaning it just objectively is a certain way because a creator made it the way it is. So, for example, gravity exists. If I take something, I take my pen and I let go, it drops to the floor. Why? Because of gravity. Gravity is, it is an objective, actual reality. And the fool does not understand that there is an objective, actual, spiritual reality as well that is governed by the Creator. And this is how it is expressed. The fool says, God is not in charge. God is not the center of the the universe. God is not the one who decides how I should live and what is right and what is wrong. I do. I'm essentially the center of my universe. I'm not saying the fool is born an atheist. 
and doesn't believe that there is no God in existence at all. When David wrote Psalm 14, he was writing at a time when atheism was virtually unheard of. Nobody was an actual atheist. So when he says, the fool in his heart says there is no God, what he means is, is that the fool is like Adam and Eve, who, who chose to rebel against God, chose not to have God as their Lord and Savior, but to be their own lords and masters, and said to God, you are not the center of life, I am the center of life. And every human being at birth is exactly like that. Anybody who's had an infant in their house knows human beings are radically self-centered. What's an infant? An infant is this fully dependent but consistently and constantly demanding human being. What can they do? They can tell you what they want. And what do they do? They tell you what they want. (laughs) Feed me, cuddle me, change me, stimulate me, spend time with me, put me to bed, feed me, (laughs) cuddle me. (laughs) That's what they want. And you might say to yourself, ah, well, yeah, but that's just an infant. Okay, fine. Well, now they're four years old and it's two o'clock in the morning and all of a sudden you hear bang, bang, bang on your door or you just hear screaming from some room, daddy, I'm thirsty. Get me a cup of water. And you think to yourself, oh, okay, but now they're, they're four years old. They're just a little kid. Fine, now they're 12. And you're in the middle of making supper. And your 12-year-old runs upstairs and says, can you take me to the mall? I need to get a new pair of shoes. And you're in the midst of doing something. And they don't even think about it. You say, well, well now they're 12. Come on. Fine, now they're 16. And it's been a long, hard day. It's 9.30 at night. You finally are finished all the tasks and stuff that you've been doing and going to meetings or doing chores around the house. And you put your feet up and they bounce down the stairs and they throw a t-shirt at you and they say, can you wash this, please? I need it for tomorrow at school. And you say, but they're 16. Okay, now they're 19. And they say, can I borrow the car? And you say, sure, you can borrow the car. And they go out for the night and they come back. And the next day you get in the car and you turn the key and you're off off to do your your errands. And you look and the gas tank is down below E and the, the, the low fuel light is on. And no, I'm not giving you like every single thing that has happened in my home. So don't... So kids, don't think that I've thought about you this whole time. I'm just saying, this is how the human heart is. Our default mode, our default mode is always, I want it my way at my time. And it is utterly destructive, not to just ourselves, but to others around us. If our children are to have any hope of avoiding the fool's destruction described in the book of Proverbs, we must set them free from their radical selfishness. All right, that's why. So how do we do it? Chapter 23, verse 26, says something very beautiful. My son, give me your heart and let your eyes delight in my ways. There's two things in this verse that are worth reflecting on together. First of all, you need to shepherd your child's heart. 
This is an extremely important principle. See, very often in parenting, what we tend to default to is we tend to default towards behavior modification. And some of us are more inclined to do that than others. I admit this was something that I was very inclined to do for a long time with my kids. Even though I knew it, I was aware of it and I knew I shouldn't do it, it was my natural instinct to do this. What we want is we want our kids to be good people. We want them to be good people. We want others to like them. What's the best way to be liked by others? Be kind. Be caring. Don't be selfish and self-centered. Be self-sacrificing. That way you'll be liked by others. We want our kids to be good Christians, which is really insane that we use that language. I'm not a good Christian or I am a good Christian. Look, let's just get over this, okay? There's one good Christian. His name is Jesus. And the rest of us are not. We're all varying degrees of lousy Christian. But we want to get our children to behave. And I'm not saying your goal should not to be to have children who are, are well-behaved. Of course. But that is not where Solomon starts. He starts with his child and he says to them, give me your heart. And here's why. He understands that the heart is the heart of the problem. See, in the Bible, the heart is not just the center of your kind of emotions where you, you know, I love things or I hate things or I'm happy or I'm sad. No, the heart is the center of the will. It is the center of your volition. Of your, it's the place from which comes your ambitions and your desires and your purposes and your motives and your hopes. All of it starts here. It is, it is the stronghold of your being. Everything else flows from it. And if you focus on behavioral modification, what you, what you do without even knowing you're doing it is you actually reinforce the default mode of your child's heart. Think about this. If you motivate your child with fear, you know, do this or else, or if you motivate your child with guilt, you say, you know, if you do this, you're going to feel really bad about it. And, or if you motivate your child with manipulation and you say, well, you know, you better do well in school because if you don't do well in school, you won't get a good job. And if you can't get a good job, you won't be able to buy a house. And everybody knows that buying a house is the most important thing in the world. If you do that, what you're doing is actually reinforcing their self-centeredness. You're feeding it. Because, of course, they're going to say, well, I don't want to get grounded. So I, I better do what I'm, set, what I'm told. Or I don't want to feel bad. So I better do what I want. And I want a good job. So I better work really, really hard. But it's all about me still, you see? Solomon is saying here, you have to love wisdom. You have to teach your children to prize wisdom, to, to guard your heart. This is the language of desire when he says, give me your heart, let your eyes delight in my ways. He's using the language of love and of desire because you see, he understands that, that what we do is we pursue those things that we love most. And so a parent, number one, your job is to, to teach your kids what to love most. Are they going to love self most or are they going to love God most? And you see, when you value God, when you trust in Jesus, when you love him more than anything else, you'll see that you're a fool without him. You'll see what Proverbs 14 says is true. 
and you'll become wise. And the Apostle Paul says that the wisdom of God is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who had wisdom beyond all the books and all the databases of all the world throughout all of history. He had more wisdom in in his pinky finger than all of that. Who deserved to be glorified and worshipped by all of us fools and yet we rejected him. He came and he sacrificially gave himself up for us. Because that was the heart of the life of wisdom. To give to others, to serve others, to seek the good of others. And when we repent of our sin, when we turn away from our self-centeredness, we get in touch with that reality. Second thing. He says, let your eyes observe my ways. Let your eyes observe my ways. Um, Or delight in my ways. We need to show our kids what wise living look like, looks like, what gospel living looks like. Um, at Grace Valley, we, when we baptize our children, parents are, are asked to respond to a vow. Listen to what the vow says. Do you now unreservedly dedicate your child to God and promise in humble reliance upon divine grace that you will endeavor to set before them a godly example that you will pray with them and for them, that you will teach them the doctrines of our holy religion and that you will strive by all the means of God's appointment to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. What is this saying? It's saying, love Jesus and let your children see how you love Jesus. Talk about who he has been for you. Talk about what he has done for you. Parents, how many of your children know your testimony, know your story of coming to faith in Jesus Christ? Well, you're like, well, my kid's two. Okay, well, fine. You can't tell them that yet. But you can tell them how much you love Jesus already when they're two. And if you're 65 and your kids are all out of the house, you can still tell them about how Jesus walks with you daily in your life and grants you comfort and grants you strength and grants you conviction of sin and grants you repentance and grants you faith. You can do that. And ultimately, as you raise your kids through being a, a godly parent, which means you have to do all the things that Jesus did for us in the sense that, that you have to put aside your own desires and your own wants for the sake of your kids. You know, I've said this before, reading boring, boring stories to them over and over again when they're little and, and getting up in the middle of the night to get them a drink of water when they call for it and taking them to every party that's out in the middle of nowhere at their friends' houses and driving at all hours of the night and constantly saying no to your own desires for the sake of your kids, what are you doing? You are modeling Jesus for them. You are modeling Jesus for them. And when they see that, and through your prayerful modeling, they embrace that, they will become wise. All right. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, none of us is able to accomplish any of the things that we have talked about this morning without your Holy Spirit 
empowering us. So we pray, Holy Spirit, empower us. I pray, Father, also for any of those parents who have been confused and anxious about their job as a mom or a dad. May the clutter be cleared away. May they see clearly their calling. May they stick to that calling, trusting you to work out everything else. Because even though we are parents to our kids, you ultimately, as their covenant heavenly father, are the one who is in charge of their lives and we can trust them entirely to you because unlike us, you are a perfect parent. You never make a misstep. You never make a mistake. Thanks be to God in Jesus' name. Amen.